Hi there. Welcome back to another episode of Head Mirrors ENT in a Nutshell. I'm your host, Drew Smith, and today we're fortunate to be joined by Dr. David Gudis, a dual fellowship trained rhinologist and skull based surgeon and pediatric otolaryngologist, to discuss pediatric skull based surgery. Dr. Gudis, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Drew. I'm excited to be here. Dr. Gudis, just to start out, is the anatomy of pediatric patients conducive to endoscopic skull-based surgery? So that's a great question. Uh, and as you know, the pediatric skull base is much smaller than the adult skull, skull base. And that can pose several limitations for endoscopic endonasal approaches. And I guess to back up even further, um, let's just define the skull base, which is essentially the border in between the bottom of the brain and the top of everything else. So the orbital roof, the ethmoid roof, the sphenoid roof, the clivus, all of that represents part of the skull base. And to access the skull base, there are a couple of different ways to get there, either a craniotomy or going through the orbit or going through the nose or going through the mouth. And each of these approaches presents a different set of challenges when your anatomical confines change. And for this reason, it was long thought that endoscopic endonasal skull base surgery in kids probably shouldn't be done. And there were a few reasons that people thought it would be too challenging to do these types of cases that were being pushed further and further in the adult population in children. Number one, um, the obvious is that you're too restricted by the narrow anatomy, that the nose is too small or the sinuses are too small. Um, so I think it's important to kind of think about where those working spaces are confined. So if you think about going through a child's nose to get to the skull base, what is your first barrier going to be? Well, the piriform aperture. The piriform aperture, or essentially the bony opening of the nasal cavity, is very small in kids. And this does present an issue, and this has been studied. The piriform aperture is significantly different in smaller kids uh, than it is in older kids. And sometimes in uh, a very small child, even the regular sinoscopes that we use, the four millimeter sinoscopes, are too big to get through the nose. And there are pediatric sinus instruments and rigid nasal scopes down to 2.7 millimeters that sometimes you have to use to get through an infant's piriform aperture. So that's the first limitation, and it's an important one. The second thing to think about is the sphenoid bone. Now, usually if you do an, a skull-based approach in a child, the most common reasons to do that, and we'll get into some of these diagnoses a little bit later, but the most common reasons to do that are either a congenital skull-based defect, and we'll, we'll talk about what that means, but something like an encephalocele or a glioma or something like that. Number two, to do a transphenoidal approach. And transphenoidal approaches would be for something like a craniopharyngioma or a Rathke's cleft, cleft cyst or a pituitary abdomen. We can talk about that too. But the transphenoidal approach can be limited because the sphenoid bone through which you are operating for a transphenoidal approach is not developed yet in very young kids. The sphenoid bone hasn't begun pneumatizing until a child's at least through toddlerhood and can often continue pneumatization into teenage years and even early adulthood. So 
when the sphenoid bone is not pneumatized yet, which means it hasn't kind of filled up with air, it's still sort of a solid bone without pneumatized air cavities that we call the sphenoid sinuses. When it's still a solid brick of bone, there are a couple challenges. Number one, it's smaller. But number two, you don't necessarily have your landmarks. The landmarks in the sphenoid are important because when you look inside the sphenoid, oftentimes you can see sort of the bulge of the carotid artery or the optical carotid recess and these things that kind of guide us and help keep us safe. So what do you do about the sphenoid bone in a child who needs a transphenoidal approach? Should you be going through the sphenoid or should you just do a craniotomy and not even go through the sphenoid bone? Well, there's some evidence that looks at this question and it turns out that by age five or six, the sphenoid bone is probably pneumatized at least 50% what it's going to end up being. So what does that mean? Well, we've done plenty of transphenoidal surgery on adults who have hypoplastic sphenoids. So maybe 50% is good enough, and it probably is. So if you figure once the kid's five or six years old, once they're in first grade, essentially, their sphenoid bone is probably as conducive to doing a transphenoidal approach as a lot of adults. So that's kind of the second challenge to think about. And the the third challenge, I think if you're going to go through the sphenoid bone, is where are your carotid arteries, right? Because if your carotid arteries are really close together because your sphenoid bone isn't developed yet, and as you know, the carotid comes up from the neck. When it enters the skull, it kind of comes forward and it comes anterior and medial in the petrous component before it kind of turns vertically upward again in the paraclaval component. And as it's coming together, as your two petrous carotids are approaching each other anteriorly and medially, if they're like right next to each other, that's going to be a pretty dangerous corridor to try to navigate between them. Well, it turns out that even in young kids, the distance between the carotids at the level of the clivus, where they are closest to each other, is actually not that different from in adults. So what have we said so far? Well, the piriform aperture is going to be a challenge, but if you can get through the front of the nose, if you can get your instruments in there, the sphenoid pneumatization is probably not going to be a huge limiting factor, especially once a kid's like five or six years old, because the pneumatization is probably at least 50%. And the distance between your carotids is about the same as an adult, surprisingly. So if you can get through the front of the nose, you're probably going to be able to get in through the sphenoid bone and, and do your work. Now, is this going to impact your outcomes? Well, that's a good question. And it turns out there's one study done a couple of years ago, I think it was in the laryngoscope, that showed that sphenoid pneumatization probably does not impact outcomes for craniopharyngioma surgery. And there are two ways to, to assess that. Number one, were you able to get all the tumor out? And number two, what was your risk of post-op CSF leak? Now, there are lots of outcome metrics you can use for tumors like craniopharyngiomas, but the two that were looked at in this one paper, they showed that at least in their retrospective series, their ability to perform a gross total resection and their risk of a post-op CSF leak were the same regardless of sphenoid pneumatization level, whether it was pneumatized or not. So what have we learned so far? Well, if you can get through the front of the nose, then sphenoid pneumatization is probably going to be about 50% by the time the kid's five or six years old. So you're probably okay working in there. Your carotids are not going to be too close together, and your ability to perform a gross total resection and your risk of a CSF leak are probably similar 
to in adults and similar to whether or not that bone has been pneumatized. So those are our two of, I guess, kind of the restrictions that we think about regarding access in the pediatric population. The other thing I'll say is that the transoral approach is also critical for accessing the skull base in kids. And a lot of approaches to the clivus or part of the sphenoid bone can be done readily going through the mouth as well using different kind of retractors like a Dingman retractor, like what you would use for cleft palate surgery. Those can be really helpful to access the skull base as well. Um, for a long time, otolaryngologists would sometimes split the palate to be able to go through the mouth to access the skull base, but a lot of times um, it's not necessary to do so. Well, that's interesting. I haven't seen a transoral approach before. Yeah, and uh, using a combined transoral and transnasal approach to access certain pediatric skull base lesions um, is is pretty well documented uh, in, in the literature with some some interesting papers out there. So you've outlined for us some of the, the differences, especially anatomically speaking, between peds and adult skull-based surgery. I assume some similarities exist as well? Uh, yeah, some similarities exist. Um, and one similarity that I think we didn't always know existed is our ability to reconstruct these patients. So when you go through the nose and through the sinuses and through the dura to get to an intracranial process, whether it's a tumor or, or a leak or something, um, that patient is at risk for a post-op CSF leak, right? And a post-op CSF leak is important, not just because that kid has a runny nose, but of course they're at risk for meningitis. Um, post-op CSF leaks, at least in the adult population, are also associated with increased risk of hospitalization and DVTs and, and, and all sorts of post-op complications. So, so they're important. Uh, and for a long time, there was a thought that endoscopic skull-based reconstruction in kids was too challenging and shouldn't be done. And in fact, there was a paper um, probably about 10 or 15 years ago now that said a nasoceptal flap can't be done in kids. And a nasoceptal flap, for any listeners who don't know, is the most common technique for a skull-based reconstruction, at, at least for a, a pedicled reconstruction. Basically, what that means is one of the branches of the external carotid artery is the internal maxillary artery, the IMAX, right? And the internal maxillary artery comes up from the neck and enters the pterygopalatine fossa, which is the space behind the maxillary sinus. So the internal maxillary artery is behind the maxillary sinus in that PPF, in the pterygopalatine fossa, and a branch of it goes through a little hole to enter the nasal cavity. The name of that hole is the sphenopalatine foramen, and the name of that artery, once it passes through that foramen, is the sphenopalatine artery, or the SPA. And that's what supplies the majority of the back of the nasal cavity and sinuses, the SPA, the sphenopalatine artery. Well, the sphenopalatine artery has a branch itself called the posterior septal artery. And that goes along the face of the sphenoid under the natural os of the sphenoid posteriorly, and then comes along the nasal septum from posterior to anterior. So that's an artery that's supplying the mucoperiosteum and the mucopericondrium of the nasal septum. Pittsburgh published a landmark paper on essentially elevating this nasoceptal flap 
while still attached to to this artery, where whereby for any listeners who haven't seen this done before, you're essentially removing everything on the nasal septum down to cartilage and bone. So all the mucosa and peri and perichondria and periosteum gets elevated off the nasal septum, still attached to this pedicle that contains the artery, and then you flip it around and use that flap that mucosal flap to cover wherever you're working and using nasoceptal flaps dramatically reduced the rate of post-op CSF leaks for skull base surgery. So it's done very, very commonly and it's a very robust uh, and resilient flap to minimize the risk of a post-op CSF leak. So for a long time, it was thought you can't do that in kids. And there are a few reasons that people thought you couldn't. Um, turns out you can. And there's one study that was really interesting that um, was done by um, Purcell in uh, the White Journal in, I think, 2015. Basically, what they showed was not only that you can use a nasoceptal flap to reconstruct the skull base in kids, but they did a radiographic analysis of the anatomy. So what they did was using scans to make anatomic measurements, how big is a nasoceptal flap in a kid and where does it need to travel to in a kid? How big is your hole and how big is your flap? And therefore, is your flap going to be big enough to reach and cover the hole? And what they found was really interesting, which is that not only in the pediatric population is a nasoceptal flap big enough to cover a hole, and not only can it reach to cover the hole that you're going to make, but the ratio of the size of your flap to the size of the defect is probably more favorable in kids than in adults. That the ratio of your flap to your defect is higher in kids than in adults. So not only is an nasoceptal flap feasible and effective in the pediatric population, but who knows if you can get it done, if the hole is not too small for you to even get in there and start your work, if you can raise an nasoceptal flap and do the surgery, Maybe those flaps work even better in kids than they do in adults. So, so that's, I think, something very interesting that unites pediatric and adult skull-based surgery, where the same principles we use for adults um, are, are really important and, and feasible and effective in the pediatric population as well. Thank you. Now that we've covered the anatomical differences and similarities, uh, let's move on to discuss pathologies that could potentially require pediatric skull-based surgery. In literature, they've previously been divided into a few categories, namely congenital, neoplastic, and fibroosseous. Starting with congenital, can you give us a differential and break down some of the characteristics of each? Sure. Um, so I guess the first question is, how are these kids even presenting? Right, Because before you're thinking about your differential diagnosis, you're, you're probably seeing a child um, with some clinical presentation. And probably the most common clinical presentation for a congenital skull-based abnormality is either meningitis or nasal obstruction. And that's because the congenital skull-based abnormalities tend to be either um, a congenital dehiscence, meaning the skull base hasn't formed properly, it's missing a piece. And when that happens, the dura can poke down through that hole and sometimes the parenchyma of the brain can poke down through that hole. So if you have just dura and CSF poking down through a hole in the skull base, and it can 
there are lots of different areas for it to poke down to, and there are lots of different subcategories of congenital um, skull-based defects. But to kind of think about it in broad terms, if you have dura poking down through the skull base into the nose or sinuses, filled with CSF, that's a meningocele. If you have dura and brain parenchyma pooching down through that hole, getting pushed down through that hole into the sinuses or nasal cavity, that's a meningoencephalocele. And if it's so big that you have dura and parenchyma and part of a ventricle getting pushed down through that skull base, that's a meningoencephalocystocele. So there are kind of different categories depending on what's actually in that sac that's protruding through the skull base, but they're generally all referred to as encephaloceles just to kind of keep things simple. And that's what an encephaloceal is. It's a herniation of intracranial stuff into an extracranial compartment. And it can happen in the orbit. It can happen in the neck. But let's just, for the sake of argument, it can happen anywhere in the spine, really. But really, for the sake of argument, let's talk about the nose and sinuses. And those encephaloceles are a risk factor for meningitis. So if a kid is having recurrent episodes of meningitis, then they should get imaging. Some would say that even one episode of of, uh, meningitis warrants imaging. So if that imaging shows a dehiscence in the skull base with some soft tissue protruding through it, that's probably an encephalocele. And a CAT scan would show the dehiscent bony skull base. An MRI would show you what's actually going through the skull base. And um, if there is significant intracranial stuff coming down through that sac, then um, it's also a good idea to get some kind of angiography, whether an MR angio or a CT angio, because you'd want to know if that big sac of intracranial contents contains, for example, an anterior cerebral artery, a big a big artery that you might have to manage if you're going to surgically operate on those kids. So that's kind of an encephalocele. That's one common skull base abnormality, a congenital skull base abnormality. A dermoid cyst is another one. And a dermoid cyst, even though it's an intracranial problem we're talking about, these actually tend to develop from uh, incomplete involution of the foramen cecum and you get extension of the intracranial tract through the prenasal space onto the nasal dorsum. So these kids are presenting not with meningitis, but with a dimple on their nose, or maybe an infected cyst on their nose. And anytime a kid has a dimple or a little pore or some hair or a cyst anywhere along the nasal dorsum, that child needs imaging because it might just be a cyst that begins and ends under the skin on the nasal dorsum, but it might be connected to an intracranial dermoid cyst. And a dermoid cyst is not a tumor. It has zero malignant potential, but it's a cyst that's at risk for infection. Um, So if that child has a dimple or, or infection or cyst or hair follicle on the nasal dorsum, and imaging represents a dermoid cyst, generally those require surgery as well. And we can talk about the surgical management of each of these things. Um, but that, that's kind of a dermoid cyst. Gliomas are another congenital skull-based abnormality. And I sort of think of gliomas as a pinched off encephalocele. So it might have some dura or some neurologic tissue 
but it's not in contiguous communication with the intracranial space. So these patients are generally not going to get meningitis. Um, people talk about a, a Furstenberg test or, or a crying test. And basically, the idea is that if the kid is crying or straining, you'll see bulging and pulsation if it's an encephalocele, but not if it's a glioma. Um, these are sort of like when people used to talk about like the Schwartz sign and Brown sign looking in the ear, pre-imaging um, physical exam findings to help diagnose lesions. Now it's so easy to get CAT scans and MRIs that we don't really rely on those physical exam findings anymore, but they do show up on tests sometimes. Um, but since gliomas are not in communication with the intracranial cavity, straining and crying would not cause bulging and pulsation of, of a glioma, but would of an encephalocele. What about the neoplastic category? So um, the most common head and neck neoplasm in kids is, I think, lymphoma. Um, and that might be true for the skull base as well. But in terms of stuff that we kind of see and manage as otolaryngologists, then um, things that come up oftentimes are pituitary tumors, rhabdomyosarcoma, uh, JNAs, juvenile nasopharyngeal angiofibromas, uh, Rathke's clepsis, craniopharyngiomas, chordomas. Uh, those are the big ones. Um, and these all kind of look different and occur in different locations on imaging. So, and they all have different presentations. So if a child is having an endocrinopathy, usually what would happen is um, a child is falling off the growth curve. So maybe an endocrinologist is consulted and maybe growth hormone levels are abnormal or exogenous growth hormone administration is not improving growth function, which might lead to imaging. Um, less commonly, you would have some optic nerve compression that prompts an ophthalmologist to be concerned enough to get imaging. But once that imaging is done in a patient like that, if a cellar or supracellar lesion is seen, then your differential narrows to the kinds of tumors that would occur in or around the cella. And the three big ones for the pediatric population are a pituitary tumor, almost always benign, a craniopharyngioma, which is benign, and a Rathke's clepsis, which is benign. All three of those tend to occur in about the same location, but they tend to look a little bit different on imaging. Um, pituitary adenoma, and, and by the way, a CAT scan would not be very good at distinguishing these with one exception that I'll get to. So you, we're generally talking about MRI here. So what an MRI would show for pituitary adenoma is generally an encapsulated growth within the pituitary gland. Um, Rathke's cleft cysts are congenital abnormalities where the um, Rathke's cleft, which is a congenital structure, does not involute completely and can fill up with fluid. And as you guys know, T1 on MRI sequencing makes fat bright, T2 makes water bright. And the easy way to know when you're looking at a head and neck MRI is that if the eyeballs are bright, it's T2. If the CSF is bright, it's T2. And if they're not, it's T1. So if you're looking at a T2 sequence MRI and you see this huge cyst right through the pituitary and cella, maybe it's a Rathke's cleft cyst. Um, it could be a cystic pituitary tumor. It could be a craniopharyngioma, but maybe it's a Rathke's cleft cyst. Craniopharyngiomas are unique on imaging 
because they tend to be heterogeneous in their uh, constitution. So they tend to have a calcified component and a mucousy component, a hard part and a soft part. And they oftentimes get kind of mixed all together. And when you're in there, sometimes you'll have like a couple big chunks of calcified tumor surrounded by a bunch of globs of mucousy kind of tumor. And um, what that means is that on CAT scan, you'll often see calcifications and heterogeneous densities within the tumor. And you're very unlikely to see those for a pituitary tumor or a Rathke's cleft cyst. So that's sort of how you can kind of narrow down what you're looking at in terms of neoplastic disorders. And I, I should clarify that a Rathke's cleft cyst is not a neoplasm, but it can function like a neoplasm in that it can be a benign expansile lesion. Um, so we kind of think about it in the neoplastic category, even though it's not a tumor. Um, all three of those are benign. Craniopharyngiomas are benign, but they tend to not behave uh, in a benign fashion. They often interdigitate to some degree with the, the thalamus or the hypothalamus, and um, they can be very aggressive. They have a much higher complication rate than the pituitary or Rathke's cleft cyst. And um, any craniopharyngioma surgery should be humbling to, to everybody in, in the room, I think. Um, and they should definitely be approached with uh, with respect. They are they are very, I think, challenging tumors with uh, potentially scary outcomes. In terms of um, malignancies that will present in the pediatric skull base, rhabdomyosarcoma is uh, the most common, and rhabdomyosarcoma are are rare, but they're uh, very aggressive. The management is generally. Um, Surgery without intracranial or intraorbital resection because chemo and radiation tends to be very effective these days. There are good chemo, uh, there are good non surgical uh, management options for rhabdomyosarcoma that have been demonstrated with big multi institutional trials and shown pretty good uh, outcome rates. And chordomas tend to have quite a poor prognosis in the pediatric population. Chordomas come from notochord remnants, and oftentimes they they can be anywhere in the spine, but usually, uh, for our purposes, present in the clivus or upper cervical spine. Um, Again, can be accessed with a combination of transnasal and transoral approaches. Um, And chordomas are rare in kids and, and often devastating. Again, combination of surgery and radiation, sometimes chemo as well, is important for craniopharyngioma management. And then um, a totally different category of pediatric skull-based neoplasms is uh, JNAs, or juvenile nasopharyngeal angiofibromas. And JNAs often present with um, nosebleeds and nasal obstruction. They grow from that space I mentioned before, the pterygopalatine fossa is usually the site of origin for juvenile nasopharyngeal angiofibromas. They are highly vascular tumors, um, and endoscopic surgery over the last couple of decades has been demonstrated to be an extremely effective uh, treatment management for, for those kinds of tumors. I do want to point out to the audience that we previously published an episode detailing JNA if you are interested in learning more. Finally, Dr. Gudis, what about the fibrooseous lesions? Yeah, so um, fibrooseous lesions is essentially the umbrella term for any tumor that grows from bone or cartilage. 
And the three most common ones we think of are osteomas, ossifying fibromas, and fibrous dysplasia. And they all look different and behave differently. Um, there are other types of fibrosis lesions like chondrosarcoma, for example. Those are all, all very rare. Um, of those three, the most common is probably, certainly in the adult population, the most common is osteoma. In children, it's probably osteoma as well. And osteomas tend to be a benign, dense bone growth from one location. So you tend to get one sort of expansile ball of bone. And they can be irregular shaped. They can grow into the orbit. They can grow into the skull base. And osteomas in the pediatric population are poorly characterized and poorly defined, but I suspect they are very different from osteomas in adults. Osteomas in adults probably grow at a rate of about one millimeter per year. And if you see an osteoma in an adult sinus and it's not causing symptoms and it's not causing post-obstructive sinusitis by totally blocking the frontal, for example, you don't have to do anything. It's probably never gonna cause them a problem. On the other hand, osteomas in kids, and what I'm about to say has little to no evidence to support it, but I think that osteomas in kids grow much more quickly than one millimeter per year. And I, I have unpublished just a handful of patients in whom I have documented growth of osteomas at, at a much quicker rate. So I suspect that there's something a little bit different for pediatric osteomas than for adult osteomas. Again, with all the hand-waving and caveats, that that's my own theory without uh, any published evidence to support it. Um, but osteomas are important because they can grow into the orbit and skull base and therefore require intervention. Um, fibrous dysplasia is always benign and generally only requires intervention if it's causing symptoms or pushing on something bad, uh, like causing proptosis, for example, by causing the orbit to protrude. Um, and ossifying fibromas are very rare, also benign. Is there any way to you know, do research or monitor the growth of those osteomas and publish it? So it's a great question. Um, the only way to do that would be serial imaging, which I wouldn't recommend only because you're exposed, you know, CAT scan would be the best way to measure it. And then you're essentially exposing kids to radiation for really a purely academic question without a valuable clinical indication. So I don't think there's a great way to study it. In my own experience, the way I've seen this present is that a patient has a big osteoma and part of it's doing something bad, like pushing on the orbit. And if part of it's also in the skull base, you don't have to remove the whole thing. So for example, I have one patient, 16-year-old girl presented with right proptosis and imaging demonstrated an osteoma that was extending into the orbit, displacing her globe anteriorly, and had essentially obliterated the ethmoid roof. Now, this was her first diagnosis of an osteoma. We had no idea whether it was growing quickly or slowly or whatever. Her only symptom was proptosis. So I removed all of the osteoma that was in the orbit, but left the osteoma that had essentially replaced her skull base. So I left the part of the osteoma that had replaced her skull base because it wasn't clear that it needed to be removed. And resecting it, of course, risks CSF leak, reconstruction, changes the surgery, changes um, the risk profile of the surgery. So our goal was to treat her proptosis, and we did. But imaging a year later showed that the part of the osteoma 
that was in the skull base had essentially tripled in size um, and it was growing very quickly. So then we went in and removed that part too. But it was sort of a representation of how osteomas can often grow much more quickly than expected uh, in a patient who we had to get repeat imaging on anyway, rather than purely out of clinical or academic interest monitoring their growth with serial scans. That's fascinating. Well, we've covered most of the differentials. We've covered when to surgically treat these patients. Uh, Let's get into a a little bit of potential complications. What potential complications do you encounter outside of the common hemorrhage or infection? Uh, And can we discuss the possible effect on facial growth? Yeah. um, So great question. What are the complications of pediatric endoscopic skull-based surgery? So You've made your diagnosis, you decide you're going to operate, probably have a pediatric neurosurgery colleague or an endoscopic skull-based neurosurgery colleague. You do your surgery, everything goes well. Now what am I worried about post-op? Well, a couple things. Number one, let's talk about facial growth. So does endoscopic skull-based surgery in kids change their craniofacial development? Well, I'll back up and explain why we're even asking this question. And the reason we're even asking this question is that 100 years ago or more, studies were published where resecting the nasal septum of rabbits impaired their facial growth. And there were a few studies after that in dogs. And essentially, this resulted in the paradigm that essentially infiltrated all of otolaryngology, that doing sinonasal surgery in kids will prevent normal craniofacial development. And for a long time, otolaryngologists wouldn't do a septoplasty in a kid, wouldn't do a sinus surgery in in a kid for these reasons. There's now evidence that doing a submucosal septoplasty in kids who have a deviated septum for nasal obstruction does not negatively impact their craniofacial development. And these studies have been done using something called cephalometry, where you're basically taking measurements of a face. And these are usually done radiographically, where you're picking defined anatomic points of the facial anatomy and measuring them either pre and post-op or post-op kids compared to kids who never had surgery and see whether or not the changes as a result of surgery result in abnormal craniofacial growth. And it turns out for septoplasty and for sinus surgery, they they probably don't. Um, So there's good evidence that you can do those surgeries in kids and not worry about craniofacial growth. So that concern was then carried over into the pediatric skull-based surgery conversation. Do we have to worry about craniofacial development if we're going to do endoscopic skull-based surgery in kids? Because, okay, maybe it's okay to do a septoplasty. Maybe it's okay to do a maxillary antrostomy. But now we're talking about a partial posterior septectomy. We're talking about drilling out all this bone, maybe drilling out half of the sphenoid or the clivus, skeletonizing the skull base, opening up the skull base, putting up an nasoceptal flap. Now we're talking about a much more aggressive surgery. So is this going to impact craniofacial growth? Well, how would you answer that question? There are a couple ways you could try to design a study to determine if endoscopic skull-based surgery is going to impact or impair craniofacial development. One way you could do that is, okay, well, if you have a craniopharyngioma, that kid needs surgery either way. So what if we took all of these craniopharyngioma patients and compared the cephalometric measurements, compared their facial anatomic measurements of the ones who had a craniotomy for a craniopharyngioma versus the ones who had endoscopic surgery for a craniopharyngioma, right? Because there's a patient population who all need surgery. Well, that study was done. It was published by, by the group at Penn, 
And what they showed was that the endoscopic craniopharyngioma patients and the open craniotomy craniopharyngioma patients had similar cephalometric outcomes, meaning the endoscopic surgery is probably not negatively impacting craniofacial development. So that's very reassuring. That's one way you could study it. Another way you could study it is take all your endoscopic craniopharyngioma patients and compare them to kids who had never had surgery. And that study was done also same year. This is all done, I think, about two years ago. That, that study was done by the Pittsburgh group, and they found the same thing. So there is now pretty good evidence using two different methodologies that endoscopic skull base surgery in kids probably does not negatively impact the development of the facial structure, the craniofacial development. So that's reassuring. One complication of many that you probably don't have to worry about so much. There's another interesting complication of craniopharyngiomas, which is obesity. And this, I think, is underreported and probably not discussed enough with patients. And what happens is the craniopharyngioma oftentimes is butting up against the hypothalamus. And the hypothalamus has a lot of jobs, one of which is regulation of ghrelin and leptin and all of these hormones that are important for metabolism. For some reason, I don't know if it's because the hypothalamus is extremely sensitive to any surgical manipulation or if it's because the tumor has already infiltrated these parts of the hypothalamus, but for some reason, these metabolic regulatory hormones can get disrupted from craniopharyngiomas and from craniopharyngioma surgery. And craniopharyngioma patients will often, from the day of surgery, start to see a slow but unmistakable rise in BMI. It's not ubiquitous. It's not everybody. But I think it's more common than um, is reported in the literature. And what's interesting is that there's actually a little bit of evidence, I think, in mice that even if you restrict the caloric intake, obesity will still develop because these hormones are basically putting the body in a state of starvation. The, 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 the hormones are making your body think that you're starving. So you're just packing on fat as a defense mechanism to caloric restriction, whether or not your calories are restricted. So obesity and weight gain is actually a, a problematic complication in craniopharyngioma patients. Now, that's a long-term thing to worry about, and there are lots of ways to manage it. The more serious and acute complications of doing this kind of surgery include cranial neuropathies, even blindness, death, meningitis, post-op CSF leaks, um, tumor recurrence, complications of um, adjuvant therapy like radiation around the cavernous sinus and pituitary gland. How is that going to impact hormone development and puberty over the course of a kid's life? And, you know, it's true for anything we do, but um, pediatric skull-based surgery, and, and, and I think particularly craniopharyngiomas, are very, very challenging. Um, thalamic strokes are not uncommon after craniopharyngioma surgery, and that's true in both adults and kids. Um, and, and it can be devastating. It can be absolutely devastating. For chordomas and, and you know, something like a chondrosarcoma or rhabdomyosarcoma, the morbidity is generally going to come from the diagnosis and not from the surgery itself, knock on wood. I think, you know, the, the evidence shows that the surgical outcomes tend to be pretty good in terms of surgical complication rates, but that doesn't mean the patient outcome is going to be good because they are aggressive malignancies. 
And then for the congenital stuff like dermoids and encephalocele CSF leaks, those tend to have very good outcomes. Um, and you know, we've we've demonstrated that that we did a systematic review of congenital anterior cranial fossa encephaloceles and and showed the outcomes are pretty good. Um, one thing that's interesting in the adult population, the risk of a post-op CSF leak is much higher for a craniopharyngioma than it is for a pituitary tumor. In the pediatric population, that's actually not true. Um, we published, I think it was in um, the White Journal, uh, we published a couple of years ago that um, the risk of post-op CSF leak in kids is about the same, whether it's a pituitary or a craniopharyngioma. Whether that's good or bad, I don't know, um, but we don't see that distinction that we do uh, in adults. A lot of potential complications. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's serious stuff. And, you know, one thing I tell patients, whether it's adults or kids, you know, when we talk about, well, it's endoscopic or it's minimally invasive or, you know, all these, these buzzwords that are very appealing for obvious reasons to patients, um, I, I always try to prepare patients that, you know, all, all it means is that you look the same when we're done on the outside. But, but it's still a big surgery. It's still going to take time to heal. We still think about all these risks and complications. And it's, uh, it's still, it, it's brain surgery, you know, when you're doing some of these things. And a lot of these tumors make me grateful that I'm the otolaryngologist and not the neurosurgeon in the room. <laughs> Absolutely. How common is the need for future revision surgery due to regrowth of a mass? Uh, that's a great question. Across the board, I, 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 I couldn't give you a number. Um, I think the recurrence rate or re-op rate changes dramatically depending on what kind of lesion you're talking about. So I think that would be tough to predict across the board, but certainly any patient who's going to require surgery for um, a skull-based problem or even a sinus problem for that matter, I think it's really important to counsel patients that there is a risk that another surgery would be required, um, not only because the tumor could recur, but because you could have a post-op complication or a delayed complication or even benign inflammatory chronic sinusitis as a result of your skull-based approach that could require surgery down the road. What does post-op care look like for these skull-based kids? Yeah, that's a great question. The post-op management of doing sinonasal or endoscopic endonasal skull-based surgery in kids has not been well-defined. There was a thought for a while that doing endoscopic sinus surgery in kids would require going back to the operating room for a debridement under general anesthesia. Um, that's generally not done anymore, and there's a little bit of evidence that outcomes are the same whether you do or don't. For endoscopic skull-based surgery, I would say about half of my patients I will end up taking back to the OR at some point, usually about three or four weeks later for a debridement, and about half I don't at all. Um, kids as young as seven or eight can become very adept at doing a sinonasal irrigation, like a neomed sinus rinse bottle or something like that. Um, and sometimes that can be really helpful. Oftentimes I find kids just heal better. Um, and whether that's because kids heal better in general, like if they break a bone, you're better off being, you know, eight and not 80 in terms of your, your healing, or maybe I just think they're healing better because <laughs> I can't get as good an exam in a kid as I could, as I can in an adult. Um, but for post-op management, they'll often get perioperative antibiotics. Oftentimes they'll need nasal saline, um, sprays or rinses. 
And oftentimes they'll need some degree of endoscopic debridement, either in the office or uh, less commonly in the OR. Well, Dr. Gudis, this has been a great discussion about pediatric skull-based surgery. Before I move on to the summary, is there anything else you would like to add about this topic? Only that I think pediatric skull-based surgery is uh, really interesting, uh, really challenging, um, and and really fun. <laughs> so I think uh, it, it's a great opportunity to see some interesting things where uh, there are a lot of brilliant people out there kind of pushing the envelope and helping us to understand what, what we can accomplish and, and how to do it safely. Thank you so much. I'll now move on to a brief summary of today's topic. Pediatric skull-based surgery requires additional care when making a wide sphenoidotomy, as the sphenoid sinus is likely not completely developed. A team approach with image guidance system is recommended for pediatrics as well. Common presenting symptoms include meningitis or nasal obstruction, and a wide differential includes categories of congenital, neoplastic, and fibroosseous tumors. Pediatric skull-based tumors that are malignant or symptomatic often require careful surgical excision. Let's move on to the question and answer portion of this episode. I'll ask a question, then pause for a few seconds to give you time to think about it before I provide the answer. When is pneumonization of sphenoid sinus complete? Late adolescence to early adulthood. Can pediatric skull-based surgery affect facial growth? The latest research has shown that surgery does not negatively affect facial growth. Which neoplasm will present with epistaxis and nasal obstruction? JNA, which is often found in young males. That's the end of today's episode. Thanks so much for listening. We look forward to sharing more with you soon.